This is Anu Drastogi, and you are listening to the Awoken Word podcast, or at least you're planning to listen to the Awoken Word podcast, though that may change, and I will have absolutely no control over that. On today's episode, I had an incredible conversation with a woman that is an absolute force of nature. Today we've got Rahil Raza, and for some of you, you may have heard the name, and for others, you'll get to know her. Rahil, or as you'll hear uh, me refer to her uh, with respect, uh, as I call her Rahilji. Rahilji is an absolutely incredible woman. She's uh, of Pakistani background, living in Canada, but truly a citizen of the world. I can't even keep track of all of the incredible things that she does. She's an author. She's a journalist. She's an activist. She's a speaker. She's a motivator. In many cases, she's been a counselor for youth who are at risk. She has been working directly with the Human Rights Commission of the UN on issues of radicalization within the Muslim world, of reform, and really working closely with youth and different communities to really transform things for an entire community of people in a very important way. She is incredibly passionate. She's also incredibly brave, and she is taking on a very, very challenging situation with an incredible level of class and humility and focus and passion on top of everything else that she's doing for the world she's actually got a world of her own as a grandmother as a mother of two grown sons who have their own families now and she really does balance a whole number of things i had an incredible conversation with her and i'm lucky that i did have it because we were scheduled the week before but unfortunately one of her grandchildren fell ill and she had to attend to grandma duties. That shows you that she not only takes care of what's happening within her circle, she's also taking care of what's happening on this giant spinning ball that we call Earth. She has in the past appeared on Bill Maher. She's appeared on Bill O'Reilly. She is definitely a well-versed, very articulate and incredible woman. Sometimes you just really need to have an honest conversation with each other, and that's what today really was about. So apologies in advance for some strange audio glitches that you might hear. My system was on the fritz a little bit, but it shouldn't really get in the way of anything. So without further ado, I present to you Raheel Raza. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring this podcast my love letter to all of you. The Awoken Word Podcast. So we're joined here today by Rahil Raza. Rahil, I'm going to have to call you Rahil G just out of respect. Uh, there's just no way that uh, I, I can't. It would feel a little sure. bit uh, awkward for me. So thank you for being here, Rahil G. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So Rahil G, for... Our listeners who don't know about you, who haven't heard your name or seen some of your work, what would you like to tell them uh, about yourself and what it is that you do? Well, I am a human rights activist. I have an organization called the Council for Muslims Facing Tomorrow, which I uh, created about five years ago. And I'm also one of the founding members of the Muslim Reform Movement. 
but that's not all. I am connected to a lot of international movements because, as you know, human rights is across the board. It's a, it's a global um, movement. Um, but in the uh, you know in within human rights, uh, my particular personal interest is in the rights of women. Uh, I was born in Pakistan. I have been a Canadian citizen for 30 years. Um, lived here. I would say a proud Canadian. And uh, Canada is uh, where I found my voice because uh, I was born in Pakistan. I grew up in a culture where women were supposed to be seen and not heard. And I think I was born an activist. I always wanted to be heard. Right. So when I found my freedoms uh, to speak out and say what I want and write what I want, uh, I am a writer and a journalist at heart. My first passion is writing. I keep getting sidetracked into other things, but uh, that that is what I love doing more than anything else. And outside of all of your work, who is the Raheel Raza that, you know, the people who know you know? Well, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a grandmother, and I think uh, at this point in my life, I'm 68 years old, not ashamed to say that. Uh, at this point in my life, my grandchildren are my joy, they are my therapy, they are my inspiration. And I would say uh, without hesitation that a lot of the work that I do today for human rights, for a better world, is for the future of my grandchildren. I have four grandchildren, two girls and two boys, and uh, it's the joy of my life. Um, I am retired, but I work now more than I ever did when I had a full-time job because uh, activism never stops. Right. It's 24-7. I travel a lot because my work calls me to different parts of the world to speak, uh, to give advice to various governments. I've been accredited with the United Nations Human Rights Council for five years, traveled there thrice a year to Geneva, uh, to the UNHRC, and that has been a very interesting learning experience, met a lot of people. And so uh, it's a journey. It's a journey that started when I was a young girl and I saw injustice. I saw um, uh, economic disparity. I saw gender inequality. I saw patriarchy. And I rebelled against it. So in some ways, uh, you could say I'm a rebel but with a cause. Sure. And, um, you know, this has been my, my journey, and it is a continuous journey. I'm learning constantly along the way. I think your business card could read International Woman of Mystery. That might also be a, a good possibly, tag. Possibly, yes. I wear many caps, and I think that's what sometimes um, muddles the, the whole idea, you know, what is my bio, who am I, what do I do? I guess you could say that I step into a vacuum when I see that there is a need. Uh, right. You know, there are many causes, and obviously, as one person, I can't change the whole world. But I do have a very strong belief that every drop counts, every word counts, every action counts, and that every individual can make a difference. So, you know, when I mentor youth, when I speak to young people and they feel frustrated and their backs are against the wall and, and you know, and they say, they cry out, you know, what can I do? And you'll, you'll note that many people don't do anything because they think that what they will do won't make a difference. And right. I remind them that everyone can make a difference. And if everybody did pitch in to make the world a better place, it would be. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, you're you're preaching to the converted here. It's 
there's a political cartoon I saw uh, over and over, especially during uh, uh, you know recent elections, where you've got uh, a whole group of people on one side of an aisle that said, I didn't vote because it didn't make a difference. And then you've got a few people that said, I voted because it makes a difference. And that, that apathy, that, that herd mentality of either thinking that someone else is going to be doing the work or that I can't make a difference no matter what I do, it paralyzes us. And so progress is slow, but somebody has to keep pushing forward. Well, that's what it is. And and I think that uh, for each one of us, it's a personal journey. It's about our own conscience. Um, There are many times that I think that it would be wonderful if I could just be a full-time grandmother and do nothing else but play with my grandchildren, which I love. But then I see what is happening in the world around me, and I hear people's stories. And I know that for me, ethically and morally, I couldn't sleep at night if I didn't think that uh, I was doing something to, to make a difference. You know, and this was beautifully validated about, I think, 15 years ago, I was in New York. And there was uh, just at random, I read a, a note saying that Andrew Harvey uh, was speaking. And I don't know if you know of Andrew Harvey is a spiritual philosopher and guru and has done a lot of work on Rumi and all the other the, the spiritual activists. So I went to hear him speak. And there's one thing he said that just stayed with me. He said, you know, if the world is burning and on the day of judgment, God is going to ask you, what did you do to make a difference? And he said, the world is burning around us. And we, each one of us, needs to put in that one drop to put out that fire. And that has resonated with me and stayed with me. And he he spoke about something called spiritual activism, Mm. which is the title of my book on spirituality. Uh, He said that it's not just about political changes. He says that those of us who are believers who are part of a faith, which I am, right. you know, I'm a believer. He says those of us who are believers have to bring about a spiritual change because when the human spirit changes, then the world changes. Right. So true. I find it interesting in today's world that things have just gotten so much more polarized, or at least they feel more polarized. It's just that we're constantly reminded of that. There was once a time where people would just have conversations in, you know, in front of each other face to face and they would have shouting matches and they would yell at each other. I remember being in London years ago, probably almost 20 years ago at this point, and in Hyde Park, they had something called Speaker's Corner where you basically bring your own soapbox and you stand up there and you, you yell and you shout at other people and people will listen to your message or not. And now we've moved into the, the modern age with the internet in particular, which is provided such an infrastructure for so many great things and yet has also been co-opted for so much shouting and trolling and bullying. And uh, if we were ever polarized, it definitely feels very clear that today is one of those times and we just see it all around us. I, I, I wish people would do more of this, just have these conversations. It's extremely important. I think we are suffering from a lack of um, freedoms to express our opinions. And you're right, we're polarized. Because I never really understood what left and right was until I experienced it myself. Uh, This idea that, um, you know, you you can't express an opinion. This is what the world is all about. Uh, 
you know, I grew up and was brought up for the first two decades of my life in a country where we did not know what freedom of speech or freedom of expression was. And I think people need to understand how much we cherish those freedoms because we live in, in a country where there is, well, technically there is freedom of speech. But that freedom of speech is now being stifled. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at universities. You yes. you look at the internet. You've got fake news. Uh, you've got these social media platforms. No, no, technology is a wonderful thing. But at my age, I still want a personal conversation. Right. You know, if I have to wish someone, if I have to speak to someone, I would rather pick up the phone and talk to them. So what I see happening is that that human interaction is getting far less. You know, it's so because. You know, in 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 a Facebook post or on a tweet, you can say whatever you want. You right. can even do it anonymously. Uh, you can slam people, and they do all the time. Everyone doesn't have to agree with me. It's my opinion. It's my journey. It's the work that I do. But let's talk about it. Right. So this concept of let's talk about it is not happening anymore because people are not... Uh, they, well, let let me rephrase it. People are afraid to have open dialogue and discussion, especially our youth, uh, because they've been ostracized. They've been criticized. It's always about you can't say that. Now, that's how I grew up. Right. So, so in the first early years of my life, we were not allowed to question. You know, we were not allowed to question, especially faith. You know, it was you have to do this because you are a Muslim. Well, my children are another generation. They are the why generation. They asked every question, why do we have to do this? So in a way, we had to relearn our faith and our values because we needed to explain to them, this is why you do it. And that is something that is not happening at a large scale. When you had to relearn it, as you you put it, did you find in going through all of that, uh, the journey and the process of that, did you find that certain things either took a greater place in your own mind and some things fell out of favor. When you relearn that, did you find yourself critically reevaluating and thinking, does this actually make sense? Oh, absolutely. This concept of critical thinking was not something that was ever gifted to us <laughs> as we were children. We were, in fact, told, don't think critically because, you know, that's not something that you need to do. So, yes, relearning was about critical thinking and about questioning. And, of course, we learned this from our younger generation as well. This is why I love to sit with youth right. because they forced you to think. Uh, you know, they ask questions. I do a lot of teaching at various uh, colleges and universities here in Toronto. And the beauty of it is that, you know, my, my lecture is only one quarter of the session. The rest of it is questions and answers because the questions force us to think. And it's very comfortable for me to say, I don't know this. I don't have an answer, but I'll find out. So what it has forced us to do, and I say us because my husband and I work in these issues together, is it has brought us back to reading and a mm. critical discussion. Now, reading is something that has fallen off the table to a great extent because now you Google a response yeah. to everything and you Google an answer. I still like the feel of a hard book. I still like the feel of, of a real you newspaper. And me both. Yes, I, I love to read and I have to read. Because in order to pass on the message, in order to teach, I must first learn. And I think the humility of understanding that we are human beings who have, uh, who don't have a knowledge of the whole world and many of the things around us, it comes from interaction 
one of the best learnings for me was when uh, 30 years ago I came to Canada, the first thing that I got involved in was interfaith dialogue. Right. I was so fascinated by other faiths and other communities, and I wanted to know uh, how have they dealt with, uh, you know, immigration, with westernization, uh, with being uh, observant and faithful believers in a different country, in a different atmosphere, in a different environment? How do they bring up their children? And this came through dialogue. Right. Honest dialogue, you know, not just fluff stuff, not just about your Diwali and my Eid, which mm-hmm. is great, but much more than that. What did you find in talking to people of different backgrounds? What is it? Did it work? Like, do, do you find that it's working that people have been able to, uh, you know, raise their children and go about, you know, living their life? Do they feel conflicted in doing it? Or are they generally finding a way to balance those two things? What did you take away from that? Well, first of all, what I took away was that we are more alike then we are different. It doesn't matter which background, which faith, which culture we come from. Right. I think uh, there, is a, there, there is a line in the Quran which became a reality for me, and that is that humanity is one community. Mm-hmm. You know, that we are first human, and then we are a different culture or a different faith. So that's something that really shouted itself out at me, and that only came because I started having discourse with, with other people and and. To my amazement, I found that many of the conflicts, many of the challenges were so similar because, you know, we are parents, we have children, uh, we are living in a community, and our challenges are very similar. Now, some uh, communities, of course, especially in in the West, have been here much longer than than we have, and they have managed to overcome some of the challenges. But generally, the, the challenges are the same. All of us worry about how our children are going to turn out. All of us worry about a better future for our children. All of us worry about extremism and radicalization Mm -hmm. of various sorts, you know. Uh, There's uh, the whole drug issue out there, you know. There's there's various um, problems that our youth face. So when we have an honest, and I I have to keep on stressing the word honest, you know, it has to come from the heart, which means that sometimes we have to be critical about our own values and rethink them and say that, okay, I left my native country, the country I was born in, by choice, and I came to Canada. So let me learn from Canadian values. Let me absorb some of the most beautiful things in this country and in return, share some of my values. Because, you know, there are Eastern values about hospitality and about family, which are very different and which are heartwarming uh, to to the Western mind. So it's about exchange. It's about ideas, and it's about exchanging ideas and having better ideas than those who are using their ideas to to brainwash our youth. It's interesting that you brought that back to ideas, because at the end of the day, that really is it. It's this... Uh, a conversation about ideas or it's a war about ideas or anything. But at the end of the day, everything that's manifested around us started as an idea in somebody's brain at some point. And some have spread and some have stood the test of time and some just haven't. But it's interesting that most people in the world just genuinely want to live in peace. They want to be able to put food on the table, know that uh, their kids have gotten education and all of the sort of cliche things that any, uh, any family or any individual would want. And yet somewhere in the middle of it, we've got all of this noise from 
uh, from politics to religion to dogma to uh, tribalism and all of these different pieces. And, and I often wonder when you see two people kind of come to a similar conclusion about uh, humanism and sort of basic human values and, and freedoms, I do have to ask, like, over the long term, maybe not over the next 50 years, but over the long term, do you think that religion and faith is a necessary prerequisite for society as a whole to live in a sort of a good, peaceful manner? Or do you see religion playing some role for only some period of time and eventually we arrive at something else? You know, if you look at the history of the world, I think that religion can be a wonderful thing as long as it is a personal matter. Where it can become complicated is when it gets intertwined with politics. And this is what we see happening today. I mean, take any religion, whether it's Catholicism, Mm -hmm. Islam, Hinduism, Sikhism, there has been a massive rise of dogma, ritualism, and fundamentalism in all these faiths across the board. And you can see the negative impact of this, especially on our youth. And I keep talking about the youth because they are the future of tomorrow. Uh, The work that I do is for the betterment of our next generations because they're going to have to take the ball and run with it. And I believe that the challenges for them are much more than they were for us because perhaps we weren't open to so many ideas. Right. You know, so that had its uh, its benefits at that time that, you know, you you, you had a tunnel vision and you, you only believed what you were told. It worked for that time, but it doesn't today because technology, while it's got all its benefits, I think to some extent has also taken away that concept of dialogue and discussion and debate, which is so important for the growth of any community and any any society. And it has to be dialogue across the board, not just within our own communities and, and our own people. Even the word community has become somewhat tainted because, you know, people say, what is community? Right. Uh, you know, I, I'm asked, what is your your community? Community. So my community are the people that I live with, which doesn't mean that they're people like me. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're people of my original nationality or my color or my faith. My community is the people that I interact with all the time. Right. And they're different people. They're diverse people. So that, in that sense, diversity is, is a huge blessing because that helps us learn uh, so much more. Uh, you, you know, you think about these things when we first came to Canada and my, my sons were very young. There was this discussion about, you know, should we put them in private school, Catholic school, public school? And we uh, specifically and uh, thoughtfully opted for public school because I believe that, you know, in the public school system, they would be exposed to this diversity that I'm talking about. And, and it was a good decision because they were. You know, and so right. when when they would bring their friends, and if I ever made the mistake of asking my son, you know, who who are your friends? What faith are they? Or you know, what they would get offended. So we don't ask them what they believe in. They're our friends. Mm-hmm. So we learn from our children. We learn from the people around us. We learn from reading. We learn from our experiences. But today, um, much to my regret, I see that the world has become so polarized and ghettoized uh, that, you know, people are living in their own boxes. They don't think outside the box. They don't speak outside the box. So if someone is different, they don't have that many opportunities to express their opinions. Well, the the sad thing I find is that different has now become equivalent to better or worse. When different is just different, we we add a, a sort of moral dimension to it or a value dimension to it. Two people from two different cultures with two different ways of thinking, neither is necessarily better or worse. 
Uh, I'll caveat that because I think there's a certain basic human fundamental uh, element around that. But it was interesting. Uh, I was uh, in an Uber with uh, some friends. We were going out for dinner after a concert a couple weekends ago. And the Uber driver that picked us up, and I, I love talking to drivers because you always get the real deal too. from them. I love talking to taxi drivers yeah, and Uber you, drivers. You, you just never know what conversation is about to play out. So this guy was, um, he, he kind of overheard some of our conversation. He started to interject and he had this very, uh, you know, very heavy, like gravitas in his voice, very raspy voice. And he, like, he really should be an orator. Uh, anyhow, it turns out this gentleman is from Libya. He's been here four years. His wife is doing a, a PhD here, and he didn't want to feel like he was some schmuck um, while his wife was going and getting her PhD. So he's been out um, working and, and and driving with Uber and working on his English. And his English was already quite good, but he you could tell he had some trouble with some complex um, concepts. So anyways, in the conversation, he, he, he randomly asked, so is it true I saw a video on YouTube that you know, there's this religion in India, there's many religions. I don't know, it's like Hindu or something. This is the way he's speaking. And that you pray to the cow. So it was interesting. It was kind of a comedic moment that he asked us this question. And then, you know, we kind of clarified the context on where that's coming from. And even within the car, there was at least two or three different opinions amongst us on where that particular tradition comes from. But he went on to say, he's like, I've been told by many people, just don't talk about politics and religion. But I say, why not? Like, why not have conversations with people? So my my message to him was, whoever's telling you not to have these conversations, don't listen to them. If you feel like talking about somebody, you have an opportunity in this country to do it because we're not going to get closer by putting up guards around certain things. Nothing really should be taboo because no. then we don't really get to know each other then. You are so right. And I'll tell you from my experience that I've been doing public speaking for 30 years now. And, you know, I've spoken to diverse audiences, um, religious audiences, spiritual audiences, total secular audiences, very right-wing audiences. And the first thing I say to them is that there is no question that is taboo. There is nothing that is off the record. And that's what I'm saying to you as well. Because as soon as we put those caveats, we stop the conversation. And if we get offended, and I'll tell you that as a Muslim woman, some of the questions that I have been asked have been <laughs> absolutely uh, mind-boggling. Um, there was uh, an incident when uh, I took my um, son who was in high school with me because I was speaking to grade 9 high school students. You know, they study world religion. So they asked me to come and speak about Islam. So I took him along because I thought, you know, same age, it'll be, be something that uh, we can deal with. And so uh, one boy uh, at the end, in the question and answers asked, asked me, uh, how many wives does your husband have? And my son was, I, I could see him bristle, you know, wow. because, because he thought that this was a that really... That would be a hard question to uh, listen to. A, a hard question. And I laughed. I said, you can never be offended because that's when you stop the conversation. Right. So I laughed and I said, as far as I know, I'm the only one. But if I ever find out any different, I'll let you know. And, and <laughs> the, the beauty of it was that it opened an opportunity for me to have a conversation with them about why in the Quran it mentions that uh, men can marry four times. See, now this is something that needs a much greater explanation. And it allowed me the opportunity to give them that explanation. And this would not happen if I had said, oh, you know, you can't ask me this question. So I've been asked, you know, questions like, why are your sons not terrorists? So I sat my sons down and I said, uh, you know, someone asked me, why aren't you terrorists? Because 
you're Muslim, you're young, you, you know, you fit the profile. And they looked at me and said, Mom, you've really lost your marbles. And I said, no, it's a very valid question. And I want you to tell me. And they said, because you taught us, mm. you taught us the values of human life. And this is what I mean, coming back to your question, that religion and faith can be a wonderful thing. Although when you look around, I see that more and more younger people are becoming more secular. Mm -hmm. uh, even in our Muslim community, many young people are leaving the faith. Now, there's a reason for that. It's because their questions are not answered. You know, they have sometimes feel so frustrated by right. what they see around them. Between the mosque and the mall, there is no safe space for them. And that's what I want to create. Our organization wants to create a platform where we can have circles of open, free, untainted dialogue and discussion with no barriers. Right. So that uh, young people, and I can you know, only start with our youth, who are very confused. There, are no, there is no doubt about that because they don't have those safe spaces. So what they do is and sometimes they just get frustrated and, and they leave the faith. So this, um, the numbers of ex-Muslims or those who have left Islam is growing by the day. Now, this can be very dangerous for them because in some countries, even today in Pakistan, that is considered blasphemy, blasphemy and it's yeah. punishable by death. So... You know, it is, it, it's scary for them, and many of them don't share that with their parents because the parents are still living in back home. Right. Uh, they may have physically moved to the West, and these are the challenges of immigration, but their mindset has not changed. It's frozen you know, in time it, there. It's yeah. frozen in time. And I, I just heard some wonderful lectures by a scholar last week where he spoke about the fact that since the, the time of creation, humanity has evolved. And in fact, he said something that was, he was an Islamic scholar who had come from England. And, and I'll tell you, the community was in shock because he said something that was uh, so mind-boggling and thought-provoking. He said that it's always been the one creator and the one God. It's just that the messages have come at different times to different people, through different prophets, but the essence of the message is the same. The form has changed. And it evolves, and he included Sikhism and Hinduism, mm -hmm. and Judaism, Catholicism, all faiths, Zoroastrians, and uh, this was something new for the community, you know. So they were sort of sitting back and and thinking about it. But that's what we need. We right. need someone to shake our dogma, and and this has been my journey: is to question everything and to uh, realize that we evolve as humans. And so does our faith system and our beliefs. They have to move with the times. Otherwise, we are in quicksand and right. we are held down. And I think you've, you've hit something really important there is this idea of evolution. It's amazing that we have evolved uh, biologically you know, over millions of years and over at least the last two million as, as homo sapiens, we're, we've essentially taken over the planet largely because we are the only creature that can coordinate and collaborate in large numbers to do something in literally millions. And often at the root of that is an idea. It's the idea that there is an enemy out there or that there is a cause out there where we should all come together or whatever that idea might be. But the idea is that thing that binds us all. And yet, when we go into a world that is increasingly polarized and sort of wrestling with all of these questions around everything from climate change to global warming to, to, to nuclear war to even just how to be kinder to each other, 
almost no religion, at least in its original form, really addresses many of those questions. Like everything else in the world has been evolving, and yet we have this expectation that we should keep looking back at the ancient, and it should stand there as a snapshot in time and be relevant. To me, it's it's even more ridiculous than what's just happened in Ontario with trying to roll back the sex ed curriculum from the 2015 curriculum to 1998, where, you know, back before 2000, there wasn't really much around sexting or cyberbullying. This idea of consent wasn't so important. Yes. And now today to roll back to something like that, it just seems ridiculous. Now we, we take that and we take the approach of religion and you're rolling it back 1400 years or 2500 years or 5000 years, whatever the number might be. So it feels odd that we don't expect of ourselves as the stewards, not just the the inheritors, but the stewards of of fates and whatnot, that it shouldn't be evolving. And I think that's been one of the re- main reasons I've seen people just kind of fall like flies out of various fates. Um, I would say even my own relationship with with religion and stuff is kind of a it's an it's it's changed a lot. I think even since you know you and I first met. And uh, I, I don't necessarily think that it's a prerequisite to be a good human being. And I think for many decades, it was really the thing, or for most of human history, it was this idea that you, without religion or faith, how can you be a good person? And I don't necessarily subscribe to that anymore. I think that there are good and uh, bad things, and it's a tool that you can take from and you can make whatever you want of it. But it's uh, it's interesting that we're we're kind of in this time today. I I agree with you that you don't have to that that religion is not the core of teaching you about morals and ethics. That's something you you learn at your mother's knee, how to be a good person. Right. You see, and good and evil exists with or without religion. I think religion and faith and spirituality can be a, is, is a spiritual crutch for many people. Uh, they want it in their lives, and I think they should have the freedom of being as spiritual or religious as they want. Now, as a person who's part of a Muslim reform movement, and you know the, the fact that we are trying to bring Muslims into the 21st century, I, I named my organization Muslims Facing Tomorrow right. as opposed to Facing the 7th Century. This is a huge crisis within the Muslim communities and within the Muslim faith, where, again, it's about constantly looking back instead of looking forward. Right. And, you know, it definitely holds you back, even as a human being, because we have to evolve with time. We have to make Islam relevant for us in the 21st century. Otherwise, our young people are not interested. They don't want to be taught about a faith that, uh, you know, evolved in the 7th century. Yes, the the foundations of the faith are there. They don't change. Again, I said the essence. But the form has to change. The form must evolve and be relevant to them. So many young people have stopped going to the mosque, many young Muslims, because they don't find it relevant to their day-to-day life. And unfortunately, the dogma, the ritualism is being embedded more and more. And to some extent, I think that the religious leadership of all faiths has failed us, has failed us miserably. Because these religious leaders are so concerned about the pulpit. They're so concerned about their control. And of course, the patriarchy is embedded in there. Uh, Especially when you look at the South Asian faiths. Mm -hmm. All of them are patriarchal, without doubt. And the religious leadership is not addressing day-to-day issues. Are they talking about the LGBTQ community? Are they talking about marriage outside the faith? Are they talking about interfaith marriages? So as a result, I am performing interfaith marriages. That's not something I set out to do. 
But wow. I mentor young people. So if a young Muslim girl comes to me and says that I want to marry a boy who is a Christian and he doesn't want to convert or a Hindu or a Jew, I do their spiritual uh, marriage ceremony because uh, no religious leader will do that without forcing conversion. So just one example of how we are not moving with the times. Right. But then I have my, my own family. Both my sons have married outside the faith and the culture. And it's a beautiful relationship because it has taught us so much more about respect, about tolerance, about accepting others. And that is what we seem to be losing in, in this whole um, you know, world of technology is that respect and tolerance. Right. It goes such a long way. Uh, to have a conversation, definitely don't need to agree. No, no. But and if everyone agreed, this would actually be a very boring world. Yes. And, and yeah. disagreement is wonderful. And, you know, I love questions and uh, discussions, but it has to be respectful. Right. So I want to take a little bit of a left turn here um, because you've, you've said something a, a couple of times, uh, you know, that, that being a good human being is kind of taught at the mother's knee. And I know obviously you take an incredible amount of pride as, you know, as a mother and a grandmother in that your circle that you're influencing is much bigger than just you, yourself and your family. And it's much needed. I've been uh, over the last few years been thinking a lot about this. What, what is the one sort of consistent thing through um, human history and our human present around what's broken. And I find if you looked at, you know, nearly every terrorist attack, every instance of domestic of abuse, of corporations exploiting, you know, impoverished countries, at the end of it, the one who's executing it is more often than not a man and more often than not broken. And when I say broken, um, I do feel human beings, all of us are to some extent broken. We might have a hairline fracture. It might be a compound okay. fracture. Um, but the, the case of men is a unique one in that when you have particularly young, disenfranchised men who don't have career prospects, may not have the right guidance, it's really easy to turn them in one way or another into either being violent or exploitative. If you looked at many CEOs in, in top you know, global companies, if you were to actually diagnose them, they would have essentially the same profile of a psychopath in that they're not necessarily uh, in touch and em empathetic with the outcomes of their actions. You know, can fire tens of thousands of people. You can destroy an entire economy and have millions of people commit suicide is what happened, you know, after the 2008 crash in the US and yet get off scot-free. And at the end of the day, it's always almost always a man who's at the end of this. And I, I, I got to thinking, particularly now having both a son and daughter, what is it about the way that we raise our boys and our men that allows itself to manifest over and over? Yes, women have issues, and yes, women also perpetrate many ills, but what is it uniquely about men? And I'm, I'm curious to know, from your perspective, having two sons and um, you know, kind of being out in the world, where do you stand on this? What do you think we can do about that specific issue? Uh, yeah, it, it's very interesting that you brought this up because just yesterday I was at an event about empowering women and I was speaking to a, a crowd of 300 South Asians, both men and women, and this particular topic about boys and the uh, the upbringing of men by the mothers uh, came up and, and became a very important component uh, of the conversation. And, you know, we have a saying um, in our tradition that if you educate a boy, 
you educate an individual. But when you educate a girl, you educate a family, you educate a village, a tribe, a nation. Now, when I say educate, I don't mean necessarily secular education in a school and a university. I'm talking about enlightenment, vision, empowerment. And this is something that has fallen off the table in many of of our South Asian countries and our communities, the importance of giving that equal uh, education to to the girls. And I also go back to the basic upbringing of boys. They become what they see. Mm -hmm. So again, we do come from patriarchal cultures and we haven't been able to break that cycle of patriarchy. And so the sense of entitlement that the boys have. And this is in the West as well. Yeah, there's no culture that's not patriarchal. Uh, You know, there are levels of patriarchy. Uh, It's just the the difference is that in the West, women have uh, been empowered and educated and, you know, they have fought for their rights, excuse me, for far longer than we have had an opportunity. So they, they, and but it's a struggle. You can see that it is a constant struggle. So the sense of entitlement that is given to the males, uh, the, the sense of empowerment over others that is given to them, the sense of control over others' lives, that has to change. I mean, this has to be a radical change of mindset. And it definitely comes down to the mothers, of how they, mothers and fathers, by mm-hmm. the way, of how they bring up uh, boys and girls in the same household. Right. And, uh, you know, I can speak to that because I have two boys. In our home, they saw uh, gender equality. They saw equality. They saw partnership. Uh, they saw um, freedom of expression. Right. Uh, and, and so they have grown up to become real feminists. Uh, you know, to sometimes to the extent that I joke that, you know, you, you are more mothers to your children than your wives are. Right. But they would never consider anything else because this is how it's been taught to them. So those examples are extremely important. You know, I mean, you as a father know this, uh, especially if you have both genders as children, how you bring them up, how you teach them, how you teach them to learn, live their lives. Right. is extremely important, and, and yeah. that eventually resonates down the generations. This has been my own experience as well. I've been very fortunate that, you know, my parents had each left India in the 60s. They were in Europe for almost 10 years before they got married, and then they moved to Canada. So they'd already had quite a bit of evolution individually, and when they met, they met as equals, and they met as, you know, my, my father wanted to marry somebody who had her own vision, who wanted to have her own drive and her own career, and he would have his own as well. And growing up, I always saw, you know, dad doing the dishes, cleaning up around the house, not letting us just leave stuff lying around because it's not mom's job to pick it up. But what I grew up with was not my father telling me what to do and how to be a man. It was just him being a man and me watching that. And it's, it, it you know, years later as an adult, I appreciate more and more nuance around that. Because there's little things that'll come up in conversations over scotch, you know, when he's visiting. And I'll realize I picked up something from him that he didn't even actually tell me. And so I think that's really critical. And then I, I look out to today's world. And um, I know you had, uh, you had seen when I'd released that piece, Baby Girl, which I'd written yes. for my daughter. And I wrote that as uh, essentially a, a love letter to her to believe in herself. And no matter what the world tells her, like, because she's a girl does not mean that she can or cannot do something. 
She is her own person, full stop. And when we were making the video, she kept asking me, Daddy, why are you making this video? Why do you? Why are you writing this? She was five at the time, so it didn't really make right. a lot of sense. And I told her, because someday somebody's going to tell you that you can't do something because you're a girl. Not even two weeks after I had released the piece, I picked her up from school. She was in kindergarten at the time, and she told me, uh, about her day, she's saying, I did this, and I played with this person and whatnot, and then we were playing superheroes, and these boys told us that we couldn't play with superheroes. And So I asked her, well, back up, what did these boys say to you? They said that girls can't play with superheroes, they're not good at it. And I asked her, what did you tell them? And we just told them that girls can do anything. I'm like, okay, see, somebody's already telling you that. And I didn't make much of it. But then on the drive home, I thought a little bit about it. How do two five-year-old boys already have this idea in their head that there's some things girls can do and some things girls can't. They may or may not have picked it up from their parents. They may have picked it up from other kids in the schoolyard or from TV or anything. But these messages are all around them and they're telling boys there are things that girls can't do. And then girls are still being told at the same time, you can do anything you want. But we're not giving them the same message consistently. And I thought this needs to change because uh, if, if I'm leaving this world behind for them, I have as much of a role to play in both, you know, making sure that those messages are in alignment with each other. And that's just not the case yet. It's not the case yet, but but we are getting there slowly. And we have to. There is no choice because we can't continue with this. I mean, yesterday um, I heard from a gentleman who actually mentors uh, young South Asian men and does classes for them. And he's been doing this for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And some of the stories he told us were absolutely horrific in terms of how these uh, young men born and brought up here, no uh, poverty, no economic instability, have grown up with this sense of entitlement that they are better, that they are special, and that, you know, women are lesser human beings. Because it has been, it, it, this is what they have seen. So to your point, you can talk about it till the cows come home, but unless you live, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that experience. So in the, the 30 years that I've been here and in the work that I've been doing, uh, one of the major lessons that I've learned is that you can't just talk the talk. You have to walk the walk. So if I speak of pluralism and if I speak of respect and tolerance and then I turn around and say that so-and-so is, you know, criticize someone for being different and not accept uh, who they are, then it, I'm not being true. Right. You know, then I'm giving a false impression. And this, of course, brings its own challenges because within the, the Muslim communities, there are many taboos against the LGBTQ community, for example. Uh, I mean, in, in Muslim lands, it's horrific because they are liable to be killed. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just not open for discussion and debate. But there is a large, thriving LGBTQ Muslim community, and they came to me and they reached out to me. So what do I do? So this brought critical thinking. You know, I had to think about it. I had to read. I had to disseminate my own built-in taboos from the time that I grew up. Mm -hmm. So it, there has to be a change in the thinking. And I realized that I have to walk the walk. You know, right. if I don't embrace those who are different, and this is now part of our mandate in, in our organization, that we accept anyone or any person who walks a different path and follows a different way. What we are saying is that, you know, you practice your faith any way you want. That is the freedom that we have. But 
as long as you're not forcing it on someone else and as long as you're not going against human rights and resorting to violence. Is there an idea around fundamental human rights as, as a thought experiment that is just so obvious and such a given that no matter what else is happening around it, that these things need to be preserved? And if so, what, in your opinion, do we need to do to get there as a society? Well, there is the United Nations Charter of Human Rights, and it is a universal charter, and it is a beautiful charter. And while I have my my own reservations about the legitimacy <laughs> and the work of the United Nations, this is something that everyone can uphold. And that is what we have to do. I also believe that we have to look at faith, religion, any religion, through the lens of human rights and not the other way around. You see, this is what happens is that many people, religious leaders will say, oh, you know, we have human rights embedded in our faith. No, you don't. Mm -hmm. If you are not tolerating others, if you are disrespecting others, if you are dehumanizing another person because they worship something other than what you believe in, then you are not observing the Universal Charter of Human Rights. So in the work that I do, I found it very relevant uh, and very credible to say that when we look at issues of women's rights, for example, right. you know, that's my big thing. So I'm dealing with honor killings. I'm dealing with forced and underage marriage. I'm dealing, uh, you know, with female genital mutilation cases, which all, by the way, are happening right here right. in Canada. Yeah. This is not something... We, we are not immune to all no, of this. No, we are not. And, and it's happening here. People are not talking about it. It's taboo. But when I speak about these issues, I speak about them from the perspective of human rights. This is what is important. It's about a human being. And so I continuously remind people, and you know, in my talk yesterday, I spoke about this. So one young girl stood up and said that, you know, if I'm not a part of a particular faith, how do I criticize what is happening in that community or in that culture? I said, human rights. Human rights are above culture and faith and community. You know, they stand right. alone. And so I think we must all promote those universal human rights. Are there cases, though, where there's just so little left in a, in a given, uh, in a given f faith or set of beliefs that there's so little left after you uh, filter away the things that don't reconcile with this fundamental idea of human rights, where that tradition no longer stays relevant? Because in many cases, that's much of what I hear from people, right? Like, there's just so much of this that just doesn't agree with uh, a modern life, for example, that doesn't make sense for me to keep bits and pieces of it. So some people just walk away from it completely, whereas others will, will find ways to kind of pick and choose pieces that they find relevant. And it is very much a personal journey. It's not necessarily happening to uh, an entire society at large. I think for those who are religious, everyone has their own personal religion. No two people have the exact Absolutely. common interpretation of yes. those things, and you'll put some more emphasis on one thing or the other. But if if there is a, a fundamental set of beliefs around treatment of, of women, around education, around equality, around equality of pay, around freedom of speech and expression, all of those things, does it come to a point where there really is no connection or overlap between them? Or do you believe that you can find in every faith in every part of the world enough um, of a real rooting in human rights in sort of a modern understanding of human rights, that that faith can reform, be evolved, and continue to actually add value? 
Well, I'm an eternal optimist. So I tend to believe that it depends on how you are looking at faith. If you're looking at faith just as dogma and rituals, then of course there's no room for change because you know sure. they're embedded. But if you look at faith as a set of beliefs and ideas, which is what I do believe that every faith is a set of ideas. And those ideas can and must evolve. Uh, only thing is that you have to have you know, revolutionary leadership. Uh, you have to have people with vision, and you have to have people who also believe in in this, you know, in universal values. And with time, that that can change because that's the only way it can be made relevant into people's lives today. Right. Otherwise, there there are pe- young people, especially who are walking away because they see no value. Uh, they they see that there can't be any change. Uh, I think in the work that we are doing with reform, we are looking at ways in which these ideas can evolve and change. As long as we believe that, you know, every faith is a set of ideas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the dogma and ritual is the, the worship part of it is a direct relationship between the human being and the creator. Mm-hmm. And as you said, no one person has a, a, a you know similar relationship. Everybody worships in their own way. So if I were to say there are 1.10 billion Muslims in the world, I believe there are 1.10 billion versions of Islam on how they relate to the Creator. But the ideas uh, can change, mm-hmm. absolutely, and they need to definitely conform to human rights and human values. It, right. it, it's interesting, uh, you know, this word moderate Muslim was being thrown around for a long time. And, yeah, what does it even mean? What does yeah. it mean? So people would ask me, and I think that, you know, the, the, the media had sort of forced us to use the term moderate Muslims because for want of a better word, we wanted to, to distance ourselves from the extremists, so we started calling ourselves moderate or progressive. And then I came up with an idea and I said, you know what, I'm going to call myself a humanist Muslim mm-hmm. uh, because I want to, I am a person of faith, I'm a practicing Muslim, but I'm a humanist. Right. And so, uh, you know, I just sort of uh, threw that out. But that concept of humanity and human rights stands above everything else. And that's what I question. When I read something, when I look at ideas, when I see how people practice their faith, the first question I ask myself is, is this human? Is this humanitarian? Does this have respect for others? Right. And if it doesn't, then leave it aside. When you take any idea and you politicize it, uh, inevitably part of that politicization uh, creates a power gap, a power vacuum. There are people who have and who don't have power in that equation. And you look at how perhaps much of the imperialist, exploitative uh, capitalist markets work today, or if you look at the way governments work, the way that, you know, the power dynamics you were talking about in the UN or religion, at the end of the day, you need to keep control of that power within a small circle of people. And in doing so, the moment that you start to see a mass of people who take things into their own hands, who become educated, who become uh, aware who can think for themselves and think critically, that is a direct threat to that power structure that's been been ingrained, right? We're seeing that happen throughout, you know, much of the Western world with the rise of populism in America. I don't think that Canada is immune. We've seen some of those waves here. You're seeing it in Western Europe. You're seeing, uh, you know, increasingly, bizarrely nationalist movements in in India. Mm -hmm. But 
all of these different things are happening. And the moment somebody awakens and says, this doesn't make sense, that person is now a threat to the establishment. And, you know, you are very much that person, you know, I know, because you're the thorn in many people's sides. And I, I wonder in the context of a, a system that wants to keep people ignorant, uneducated, uninformed, and distracted, what can we as individuals and as groups of people who don't necessarily have that same power, what can we do to change that? What are the things that you're doing to make that uh, shift for us? You see, who gives power to these people? Who gives power to the religious leadership? Who gives power to the politicians? Who gives power to those who are in power? We do. Right. So we have to stop giving that power. We must question those because they are human beings. What we have been taught is that you don't question the people in power, right? Right. But we must. And this is what a democracy teaches us. This is what freedom and liberation teaches us. And this is something that we must all imbibe and teach our children, children and grandchildren as well. And they do, to a great extent, they question, but they're told, no, you know, you, you can't question the religious leadership. Why not? They're not divine. Mm-hmm. Although they'd like to think that they are divine, sure. you know, this is what, what they would would like to promote. We must question that power. Mm-hmm. And not enough people are doing that because they're intimidated. Uh, they're scared. Uh, now, the work that I do, and, and you mentioned I am a thorn in the side of the religious leadership, of the political re- leadership. But, of course, we do it with respect. So we have a prime minister. I don't necessarily agree with some of his policies. I respect the fact that he is my prime minister, but I would question Mm -hmm. openly and blatantly because that is my right as a citizen. That is my right as a human being to question another person's power if it is not in sync again with human rights or if it is not in sync with world peace. So, uh, you know, communities globally, People, citizens must use that power to question. But having said this, that power to question has been stifled. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'll give you an example. You, we now have a motion called M103, you know, right. and that motion is that you cannot criticize Islam or Muslims. Now, as a Muslim, I find that so offensive. And just for clarity, for those who don't know, is that specifically only for uh, Islam or is there any other? uh... Well, the wording of it does have a broader context, but Islam is specifically mentioned. Now, I uh, went to Parliament, to the Canadian Parliament, and gave testimony and witness that M103 is not a practical suggestion that M103 is going to create more uh, unrest. It's going to put people's back up against the wall. And you know what happens when there is a stifling of free speech and critical thought? That that's when the rise of the right happens. Mm -hmm. You see this in Europe where any criticism was stifled. But now you have people who are so frustrated because they can't ask questions. Why shouldn't a Canadian citizen be able to ask questions about terrorism, about extremism. There have been extremist attacks in Canada. And I'm speaking to you now as a Muslim activist that I don't like the concept of M103. I want people to criticize Islam if they have any questions, because again, it gives us an opportunity to have a conversation. But when their criticism is stifled, then it builds up, it festers, Mm -hmm. and then it bursts open sometimes in very negative ways. We have seen this across the globe. 
in a lot of the work that I do, I remind Canadians to look at the European experience, which has been a very unpleasant experience in terms of the rise of the right because of the suppression of free speech. I've traveled across Europe on an educational trip and seen how the communities are dealing. Oh, well, let me put it another way, how governments are not dealing with it. There are governments in Sweden who will look the other way. They don't want to deal with the rise of radicalization within their countries because it frustrates them. They don't know what to do. The police in Sweden would rather not go to a particular area. They will resign before they go to a certain part of the country where there are large ghettos of is immigrants. That, is, what is, to what do you attribute that resolving is it that they're afraid is it that there there's a fear of being seen as bigoted or um you know not this the right term but racist yes. or, or whatnot is oh, that yes, what's driving course. this it's, it's very simple they're terrified to speak out because they're afraid they're going to be called bigots and racists because this is how this victim ideology has mm -hmm. grown and this has been the success of the extremists they're laughing because this is what they've done they've terrified you know, the, the Europeans from, from speaking out. There's also a sense of apathy in the government. So I was uh, sure. giving testimony to the Swedish government and I asked them, I said, this is a beautiful country, which it is. You have so much infrastructure, you, you know, economically stable. Uh, why is there so much unrest? They said, well, we have so much that we are uncomfortable with this, so we want to, to spread the goodwill. Well, you do that, but you do it with, with reason and, and with knowledge and thinking about it. Ghettoizing certain communities in, in a particular part of your country and letting everything happen there, which is not part of human rights, is not the solution to the problem. Right. So turning uh, the, the, the other, you know, looking the other way and deflecting from the real issues and understanding we have a problem of radicalization in this country. It's not a huge issue. Why can't we talk about it? We were talking about diversity earlier, and I think that diversity is one of those words that has so often misused and misunderstood. Uh, I, having you know worked in, in 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 various fields and been in so many meetings and conversations, diversity is usually reduced to we've got this ad happening. We need to have one guy with a turban. We need to have one black woman. You need to have a, a white guy and somebody who looks Jewish. You've nailed it. That, that is not diversity because all of them could be terrible people with the exact yes. same uh, moral compass or all of them could be wonderful people or more likely they're probably spread as, you know, across the gamut. And even in throughout history, like if you look at the civil rights movement in, in the U.S., Martin Luther King is celebrated today. He was vehemently hated by much of the civil rights movement. They did not agree with his specific, the way that he would go about trying to push African Americans to be like the white man in dress and in speaking manner and trying to only be prim and proper. He loathed himself. He loathed many things that were sort of inherently black culture because he didn't think that that would give them the equal playing field that, uh, and then allow white America to them grant them their rights. So even within a movement like civil rights, you have such a huge diversity of opinion. And in any movement, you're going to see that diversity of opinion in every part of the world. And yet, if we don't talk about it, nothing gets solved, A, but also I, I feel like this world of identity politics and, and victimology, it's a real shame because albeit much, many ills throughout history have been perpetrated by white men. I mean, it's just been the history of the last, you know, few thousand years. 
or at least a few hundred years. But if a white man has a fair question or a fair opinion about something that is actually thought through and is clearly articulated, if he says something and it inevitably rubs somebody the wrong way from a different minority group, all of a sudden it's dismissed as racist or bigoted or coming from a place of privilege. And he may be coming from a place of privilege, but you should actually challenge the idea on its own merits, regardless of where it's coming from. But we are not allowing that diversity of ideas and opinions, and we're tying those opinions to the color of the skin or the gender of the person that it's actually coming from. I agree with you 100%. To me, one of the biggest problems in this country, and I'm speaking of Canada, has been this concept of government-sponsored multiculturalism. You know, diversity has started being used as a buzzword. It's lost its meaning. I mean, even I use it very cautiously. Uh, The idea of multiculturalism, I mean, the government can't force people to like each other. No. Uh, we have to understand that people are different and also, very importantly, all cultures are different. This doesn't mean that they are good or bad, but a culture that does not respect its women is not the same as a culture mm-hmm. that respects its women. And so cultures are different and we have to recognize that. But multiculturalism is this umbrella that wants to say that everybody is equal culturally and their values are the same and that you have you have to like each other. No. I have stood up often in my talks and told people that, you know, you don't have to like Islam and you don't have to like Muslims because that is your freedom. All I want you to do is be knowledgeable about it. Mm-hmm. You must have the knowledge based to, to, to understand why is it that you don't like them. You must know what you're talking about. So my job is to educate you and then the decision is yours. So this idea that we're all going to be warm and fuzzy, even in one family, people don't get no, along. No. <laughs> it's very natural and it's very human not to get along. You know, there may be a neighbor that I don't like. There may be a colleague that I don't like. Why do you have to feel guilty about it? As long as you are not disrespectful or resorting to violence and you're not killing people because you don't like them, the question is that it's it has to be organic. Right. In a country like Canada, where there is such a plethora of different communities and immigrants and colors and, you know, just the beauty of it, let people decide if they want to get along or not. That is their freedom. Right. So this idea that diversity is the solution to all problems and that multiculturalism is going to solve our problems because we are going to la-la dance with each other in a circle, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Right. And it has really been to, to a disadvantage because, you know, this idea is promoted in schools and, as, as you said, uh, you know, it's become a buzzword where a person of color fills the the uh, mandate of the... the uh, you know, the, the, what is it, the organization that is hiring people, that if you have five people of color, you know, your mandate is filled. No, look at the qualifications. Yeah, yep. And in many ways, I will say this, much to a lot of people having feeling hostile, that the white man has been the victim of this. Uh, you know, the racism has been directed towards the white man because they can't open their mouth or say anything because of this whole, whole idea. And I, I think that that's very unfair. Right. It's funny, actually, this particular conversation comes up actually quite a lot because, uh, you know, friends of mine in different walks of life who are white men, maybe they're, they're somewhat more cognizant of it now than, you know, years ago. But like at one, on one hand, they do have a certain degree of privilege. There's no question about it. Walking into a room, walking into a meeting, you know, being uh, a, you know, a middle-aged white man, it has a certain 
privilege associated with it in many corners of the world. And at the same time, that person may have worked for the last 20 years to be as open-minded and as accepting and honest as possible is really working alongside of many different groups to really bring people together. And ironically, he's painted with the same brush as the last white guy who just happened to be a terrible person. And so this... um, it's it's a strange dichotomy that's happening, and I think that it might be the first time, at least in the last you know you know several hundred years, where uh, all of a sudden being uh, a white man is not just privilege. There is some drawbacks to. It. I still I still do believe there is a lot of privilege associated with it because I've seen how it's played out. But regardless, when someone makes a good point, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their age or ethnicity or gender. If they make a good point and you discount that good point just based on who it's coming from, then you've lost something there. We, we all have to just em- embrace and accept the fact that a good idea is a good idea is a good idea. And an individual is an individual. We have to deal with people on an individual basis. The idea of generalizing either groups or communities because of their color, because of their ethnicity, because of their uh, nationality or or because of their gender is something that's uh, become a common practice. Uh, I don't think that we are in a position to label anyone unless we have an individual connection. So it's with great difficulty I constantly remind myself not to generalize, you know, meet people, talk to them individually, deal with them individually, and decide for myself who this person is and whether they are uh, of value or not. So on, on that note, this is something that I think a lot of people have been wrestling with for, you know, the recent times, especially with the rise of polarization. And and you and I were talking about this. I despise using the terms left and right. Um, you know, anything that seems like a, a real binary like that feels like it just automatically pits people against each other. Um, you know, liberal versus conservative, all of these these binary constructs, they just, I don't think that they really help. In this polarized world, you're seeing more and more uh, hostile attitudes coming up, and there's a whole gamut in between. And in that context, is there a limit that you would place on free speech? Is what, was, what does free speech really mean at the end of the day? I know the U.S. has you know, its First Amendment around it. Even Canada doesn't have anywhere within its constitution an actual constitutional protection of free speech. But what does free speech really mean? And is there a place that that ends? You know, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> it's a challenging question because we've been faced with it you know, in recent times. We're having these conversations about whether there should be limits on free speech. I personally do not believe that we should place any limits on free speech. I believe that free speech is exactly that, the freedom to say whatever a person wants, as long as they are not promoting violence or resorting or or encouraging anyone to to promote violence. Uh, You know, that's a different thing altogether. But, um, you know, again, I'll I'll give you an example. We've had recent cases of Gert Wilders, uh, you know, speaking out against Islam and the Prophet and the Quran. I mean, this happens all the time. It's happened since the time, uh, you know, since the inception of of Islam. I don't think that it harms my faith if people insult it or if they say. It's not a good thing because I personally would not disrespect or insult anyone else's faith. But that's my morals and ethics. It's I've learned that if I want respect, I need to give respect. However, at the same time, if someone insults my faith, 
uh, I believe they have that freedom to do so. And we should be able to engage in dialogue. And I can't tell you the number of times I have been at events where someone has stood up and slammed my prophet, my holy book, my faith, and I have given them the benefit of that free speech and used it as an opportunity to engage in mm -hmm. conversation. So I personally don't want to ever put limits on free speech, although there are people who say that, you know, there should be. Uh, now, on the other side, look at the amount of hate that is being perpetuated yep. through curriculums, through events. I mean, it's out there. That hate is what is creating the divisions. It's not the free speech that's creating the divisions. It's the hate that is being taught. In Saudi Arabia, the curriculum of school children teaches them to hate Jews and Christians. We rarely talk about that. Mm -hmm. Right here in Canada, there are events. There is the BDS movement that's teaching people to hate Israel. Uh, we, we, let's have a conversation. We don't have to agree with any, any, any country's political uh, side. We don't have to agree, as I said. But we should be able to have a conversation. But there is definitive hate being taught. That is what I think needs to go. That is what we should target. Do you think that the people who are uh, the puppet masters that design these curriculums, that come up with these ideas, drive these movements, do you think that they themselves genuinely hate the other? Or are they using this hate as a concept to further their own political and power and monetary agendas? Like, Do you, do you, do you believe that hate in its original form is true and real? In some cases, I believe the hate is too and real because when an entire generation has been taught to hate another person, another community or another country, then it becomes embedded. They think that it is real. And this is where the fake news, where the politics, uh, you know, where propaganda comes into play. So, yes, to some extent, when the same thing is being told to you over and over and over again, then it becomes a reality for many people. They can't differentiate between the black and white. There's mm -hmm. no gray area for them. On the other hand, of course, hate is also used as a political tool. How else would you be able to harm another person unless you were taught to hate them and therefore dehumanize them? Because this, you know, this thought and this conversation often comes up, how does one human being uh, pick up uh, a, a weapon and harm another person. You know, in our thinking, in our life, that is unthinkable. Sure, yeah. We could never think of doing that. But then the power of hate is so strong. And that is the only tool that is used. And I can tell you about communities where hate is taught from the age of two to young children over and over again. They are taught to hate a particular group. It becomes a reality for them that these are hateful people. They must not live. Therefore, killing them or harming them is justified. When people come at some point in their life, you know, let's take a child who's been raised in this manner and has been force-fed this idea of hating some other group or groups of people, you know, their entire life, and they kind of come to this realization that, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. Have you heard from those people? Have you spoken to people who have kind of come out of that sort of upbringing and then they, 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 they realize that something is not quite right? Have you come across yes. those people? And what do they tell you? 
And they tell us exactly what I am telling you. They say I was so filled with hate that I couldn't see anything else. You know, my mind was so filled with hate and rage that all I wanted to do was lash out at these people that we we had been taught to hate. In our work, we do come across these people. We mentor them. Uh, sometimes they change. Sometimes that hate is so deeply embedded that they don't. You know, that is the level of where the hate uh, then transforms itself into violence. You know, these are people that we call radicals. So one of the programs that I'm involved with doing is trying to intervene before that stage is, you know, trying to intervene with young people who perhaps have been sidelined by the, by this hate is to, to, to find them democratic and easy solutions to vent their anger. You know, anger is a very natural thing. Yeah. There are people who are human. They're frustrated. You're human. You're angry at, at, at the state. You're angry at the government. You're angry at the establishment. These are the people that the manipulators play on. They yes. play on them. They yeah. find them. They play on their minds. And then they say, okay, we will find you a way to vent your anger and your hate. Here, take a weapon and use it. And they do without thinking logically. So in the work, as I said, we do, we have come across these people. And it is inevitably the hate that is either taught to them in uh, places of worship or hate that has been taught to them at home. It mm-hmm. happens in many uh, cases where right. you're just taught to hate the other person because they are the other. We're we're even hearing, you know, second and third hand about some of that in, in schools in certain parts of, uh, uh, you know, Toronto, you know, parts of Mississauga, you know, where, where kids won't play with other kids. You know, the first thing they'll ask is, what religion are you? And they won't, uh, they won't play with them. And I, I just find that sad because to come to a country like this, for all of its flaws, I mean, Canada is by no means perfect. We have an abysmal, abysmal, not even history, our current situation in our our treatment of our Aboriginal, really the people that were here first, that we are all indebted to for even allowing us to stay, the way that we treat them. Uh, There's many other issues that we have here, but in many ways, this is a remarkable and incredible country. And to come to this, to come to this place, and then not give yourself the opportunity to expose yourself to the plethora of people and ideas and diversity, and I mean diversity in the truest sense here, and to try and keep yourself in this ghettoized mindset is just such a shame. Because to come and just benefit economically, I think, is only part of the promise, part of this experiment that is Canada or the United States, uh, for that matter, is to be able to come and build something new and build it together. And why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? I just find that so disappointing. I didn't grow up like that, but I know many people who have that were kept in an insular way. You know, you'd go outside the house and you'd kind of interact with the rest of society, but you are nothing but the person that your parents brought you over and you were carrying all those same ideas. It doesn't work. And you see that conflict play out. You see that, and for the next generation, it's extremely important that we replace the hate with love. And even though uh, it may sound like a fluffy idea to say that you love everyone, but at least respect them. If you, sure. don't, if you don't love them, respect them. And this is what I teach my grandchildren, that if you want respect, you must give respect. You know, they come to us with stories about bullying in the in, in the playground and uh you know, kids using racist language, and you often think, what kind of upbringing have these kids had? So I tell them, don't react to it. 
you know, you must always react with respect. If someone is bullying you, or well, bullying is a different thing, but if, you know, someone is dis- disrespecting you or being racist, you don't have to be racist back mm-hmm. to them. Right. And, and this happens all the time. I mean, this is here in Canada. My sons have had racist remarks thrown at them, you know, for, for being brown and, yep. and Muslim. And uh, you just have to learn uh, to to ignore that. But we are allowing too much of this to fester. We are allowing too much of this to happen. We do need to replace the values. And again, I come to the values. It's so important that we talk about human values, the values that we teach our children. And this does not have to be religion. It has to be the values of humanity and of interacting with each other. And, you know, we must take this further because the next generation has enough challenges that they will face because of what kind of a world they're living in. Let's not teach them hate. Mm-hmm. You know, take th- that away. I think to just to kind of come slightly full circle here, I mean, love absolutely can and hopefully will trump the hate. However, at the same time, it's not just love of others. It's also self-love, right? That's a thing. And, and that's kind of at the root of why I have been, you know, spending some time thinking about the situation of men and, and boys in general, because at the end of the day, if you don't love yourself, it becomes really difficult to love other people because not loving yourself and and having some sort of favorable feelings to other people might be seen as envy or something. And that's a different, it's a different emotion. It's a, yes. There's a different mechanism at play. And so too often boys are told to man up. They're told that boys don't cry. Even today, uh, and I know it's gotten a lot better yes. in, in this generation than it was in, in previous generations, but even now, toughen up, boys don't cry. But if you're a boy and you have an emotion and you don't understand it and you just feel like crying or feel like talking about it and you're shut down over that, that is going to that emotion isn't going to go away. It might get suppressed for a bit. It'll fester and it'll come out in some other way. And you take enough of those shutdowns over a lifetime and that manifests itself in, in different ways. And I believe that we do a better job of raising today, of raising our girls to be strong and independent and yet still preserving that sense of vulnerability and empathy and whatnot. But we haven't done necessarily as good at a job with with our boys. And so if we are to love each other and be tolerant of each other, I think we also need to love and appreciate ourselves. But we also need to be able to be critical and confident enough that when something critical is raised about us, like a real critique, uh, whether it's personally or as you know, part of the society that you are from or your background, you should be able to take that in stride and evaluate it for what it, it is and not love yourself less as a result. And I believe that that, that self-love, as cheesy and corny as, as it sounds, yes. is the thing at the end that is kind of a catalyst for transforming men and women for that matter and societies as a whole. But we are too often distracted from loving ourselves, being constantly focused on through you know through the media yes. and social media and advertising and whatnot on here's all of the great things out there that money and power and status and a fair skin color and all this stuff is going to buy so in doing all of that without saying you should hate yourself all we're saying is you should love all of these other things that you are not and it creates this gap within an individual so i think there's this societal transformation that we have yet to make and it's this is globally absolutely in every walk of life in every different piece of infrastructure that we've laid for our societies 
is rampant with this same phenomena. And so I feel if we can resolve it and figure out a way to resolve it in one place, we can learn something from that there and apply it to the next and the next and the next. Absolutely. It's something, again, it, it has to be a change in our thinking. It has to be uh, an evolve. You know, we have to evolve. We have to, to change the ways in which we are bringing up our children. And definitely, I hope that that change will come. And uh, you know, I just, uh, we talked so much about uh, human rights and human values. Uh, I want to end with a, a saying from a very famous philosopher and poet called Saadi, many centuries ago, who said, human beings are like the parts of one body. If one part hurts, the rest of the body is also affected. So, oh, you who have no feeling for another human are not fit to be called human. So this is what we have to consider, that we are all one humanity and we have to care for ourselves and for each other. Absolutely. Well, we, uh, we are all better off for someone like you maintaining the optimism and the passion and the fire that you do. This has been a privilege to get a chance to speak with you. I think that you're an inspiration for just people in general. And it's also just never too late to find out whatever that voice is. And I think, I know you've been on this road of, of you know, finding this passion and, and, and doing what you believe that is the, the thing that you're either brought here to do or the thing that you can contribute to the world. You know, before we close, for, for people out there who are constantly struggling with, I don't know what I can do, or I don't know what it is that motivates me or impassions me, what guidance would you give them? Well, do a little um, thinking, do some uh, reflection. It's important to uh, separate yourselves uh, from the material uh, surroundings, uh, you know, which is the technology. And I think that many people don't allow themselves the, the benefit of thinking because they're afraid of where their thoughts mm. will take them. You know, so they're so caught up into, you know, they're listening to to meditative series. They're plugged into their phones and their computers and they're searching for spirituality. I think that that search for spirituality, this is non-religious spirituality, sure. yeah. is a human endeavor. And each one of us is searching for that. So allow yourselves that. That privilege. Let yourself go free. Think about what it is. And everyone has a different talent that they can offer. This is my belief that there is so much talent and there is so much people can give in different ways. Uh, you know, when I mentor young women, a lot of them and a young girl came to me yesterday as well and said, I want to do the kind of work that you do. Maybe not everybody has that freedom and benefit to be able to be an activist like I am because, you know, there are families, there are commitments, there mm -hmm. are things that hold them back. It's do whatever y your passion wants you to do. Do whatever your heart wants you to do. The heart is a great thing. Listen to your heart. Sometimes not so much the mind but the heart. And right. the heart will tell you uh, what it is that your journey is, what it is that you want to do, and then just do it. Yeah, just do something. Do something. Do something. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think don't too. be apathetic. Don't be apathetic. Uh, don't just sit back and think I can't make a difference. Don't just think someone else will do it. Right. Yeah. I have to do what I have to do. I think so many people today, and perhaps always, are just uh, we're too afraid to be alone with ourselves. Yes. And until you actually do that, you don't hear whatever that voice is or figure out that I, I'm fully on the same page. Everyone has their unique gift and their unique thing that they bring to the table, that they bring to the world. And I think so few of us actually give ourselves a chance to figure out what that could be and just take a little bit of a risk on ourselves. 
So it's so liberating, uh, you know, when you finally are able to to use that talent or use that passion. And it could be anything. It could be one drop in the ocean that makes the difference. Absolutely. And to me, it's not the larger picture. It's that one drop that matters. And it has to start somewhere. It has to start somewhere. So for uh, for everyone listening, where can they find out more about you and your work? My website is www.muslimsfacingtomorrow.com. Uh, if they Google my name, they will get so much information that it will boggle their minds. But <laughs> <laughs> that is something that's out there. Um, everything I do is totally transparent. So it's all out on the Internet, sometimes to my detriment. But pick and choose and uh, see what path they want to follow. Well, Rahilaji, thank you so much for being here today. And I hope that we can continue this conversation in the future. Would love to have you back. I hope so too. And thank you so much for allowing me this opportunity to speak about my work. Thank you. If you'd like to support the Awoken Word podcast, there are many ways you can do it. You can subscribe in your app of choice. We're on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn, for example. The biggest thing that you can do is rate this podcast and leave your review in iTunes or wherever you listen to it. You can also talk about this podcast, its guests, or the ideas shared on it in your own podcasts. If you find benefit in this show, tell your friends, tell your family, and even more importantly, tell your enemies they'll appreciate it too. And of course, you can also follow us on social media, particularly on Twitter. Our handle there is at Awoken Word, on Instagram as at Awoken Word Podcast, or on our Facebook page. Thank you. Your support is greatly appreciated. <laughs>